One of my favorite Christmas carols we sang this morning. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Today we're talking about receiving and both Rebecca and Rebecca helped us understand that believing and having faith in God, which by the way is also receiving what he gave, but having faith and believing him is the key to receiving from him. Let earth receive her king. You know, when you think about it, virtually every, well, not every, a lot of Christmas carols not only speak to us about the birth and celebrating the birth of a baby, but also speak to us about the lordship, the kingdom of God, and us adoring him as king. That our reception of him as king is necessary to receive the peace on earth, goodwill toward men that he promises. You don't get the peace and goodwill without getting the king. That is the point of his rule and reign over our lives and over all that he created. And he is reestablishing, he is creating a kingdom that will have reign and rule over all that he has made. Throughout Israel's history, they were desperately longing for a king. Moses and Joshua were long gone. They had been great leaders, but Israel now is wanting a king. They've suffered through a period of judges and prophets, and they want a king to go before them and fight their battles, to wield a sword, power, influence, and secure their borders, to make them safe, to give them credibility. As Andrew Peterson writes in a song that I love off of his Christmas album, we want a king on a throne full of power with a sword in his fist. Tell us prophets, will there ever be a king like this? Their insistence on having a king, having a king for them, culminated with the prophet Samuel who had led the people faithfully and he was leading them currently and the elders of Israel came to him and said, we want a king. But Samuel was exasperated with them. He was disappointed because he knew that their wanting a king was the wrong kind of king and for the wrong reasons. They wanted a king who would rule over them like all the other nations of the earth. Like we see in 1 Samuel 8, 6, when the elders said that, Samuel was not pleased. He prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told Samuel, listen to whatever the people say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me from being their king. They are doing as they have always done. When I took them out of Egypt, they left me and served other gods. They were doing the same to you. Now listen to the people, but warn them what the king who rules over them will do. And that is exactly what Samuel did. He laid out for them all of the pitfalls of this plan that they had to have a king like all the other nations. But it didn't change their mind. They continued to persist and their demands for a king. And so down further in 1 Samuel 8, verse 19, it says, 
But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. That's a problem. God made them to not be like all the other nations. And the fact that they want to be tells you they're wrongly motivated in this request. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Therein is another problem. The fact that they want someone else to fight their battles and they're not willing to do it themselves. You know, have you ever insisted on something and then you got what you wanted and you regretted it? There's a lot of quiet voices in here tonight, today. Uh, I've done it. I've requested, I've wanted, I've desired something. And then when I got it, it really proved not to be as good as I thought it would be. God let them have a king. He gave them a man named Saul. He was a very impressive, handsome fellow. He, uh, he actually stood head and shoulders above all the crowd. He literally was what they said is the best Israelite in the land. But we also know that this one, Saul, had a lot of mixture in his life, to use the term that Robert spoke about last week. He had a lot of mixture that led to a lot of idolatry. He had massive character flaws. He had insecurity that drove him to self-absorption and narcissism. He was paranoid in the end, and he was always pursuing his own desires and never the desires of the Lord. Saul was a colossal failure as a king. They asked for one, but what they got, they really didn't want. And so he was eventually replaced by another, and he was the antithesis of Saul. He was the direct opposite on the other end of the spectrum, and this one was named David. He was the least and the most insignificant of his family. He was the youngest of eight boys. His dad's name was Jesse. He was a shepherd boy, just took care of the family sheep. He was a musician. Um, he played, he played a, uh, a stringed instrument, and he sang. Maybe not the toughest looking guy. I'm a musician, I can say that. Uh, no offense, Justin. But you know, if you're looking for a king, a guitar playing guy may not be the one you're looking for. You want someone that head and shoulders above all the rest, who looks impressive, who's fierce, who's strong. But David was just a ruddy little kid who took care of some sheep. But he was what the Bible says, a man after God's own heart. And he grew into be a mighty warrior. It was said of David, they sang a little song who, as he was serving Saul, they said, Saul has killed his thousands and David has killed his ten thousands. All of a sudden, the ruddy little musician is honored by God and he's slaying Philistines everywhere he goes. Even though he wasn't perfect, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a true worshiper. He lived in the fear of the Lord, which is how we're to live, in the fear of the Lord, quick to repent when we're wrong, wanting his providence and his provision and his power in our lives, submitted to him in all the things that we do. Well, David was a great king. He was the best king Israel ever had. And after him came his son named Solomon. And unfortunately, Solomon Though he led Israel into great splendor, had mixed motives and modeled a divided heart. 
As Robert said last week, he had 700 wives. I don't even know what a man does with 700 wives. I can't imagine what he's thinking. But understand this, in that time, the reason you married oftentimes as a king was to make treaty with those that were opposed to you. And so what he was doing was enlarging their territory and their influence by marrying leaders, children, daughters. And it made him a great and mighty leader, but it mixed what Israel was doing. And what that did was led to a split in the kingdom. And in that split, we had a northern kingdom of 10 tribes that had Over the next 200 years, 19 kings. And the Bible says that none of them did what was right in the sight of the Lord. Think about that. None of the kings of Israel did what was right. In fact, it says they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then the other two tribes, the land of Judah, they lived, they survived a little longer. They went 350 years. But of those 20 kings beyond Solomon, only eight did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And it shows us in where we are today that earthly kings and kingdoms and presidents and governments and earthly leaders and human endeavors, they just can't save us. Oh, you should have said amen right there. They just can't save us. Thank you. Only God can save us. Israel wanted a king like all the other nations. But what they got was a mixed bag, a huge disappointment. With those kings often doing more harm than good, doing what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. It really makes you stop and think where we are today, we should be careful what we wish for. We just might get it. While we are to obey those in authority and certainly pray for those who are in power, and we should pray that the Lord would exalt righteousness and put down evil, we must not deify leaders. We only have one leader that is a deity, that is God. And there are no others that should be elevated to that posture. Our faith must be in God and in Him alone. The government rests on His shoulders. And of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. Now, I want you to fast forward 600 years after these kings that that have ruined Israel and Judah. We see once again a stark contrast between two different kinds of kings. Gaius, Octavius, Thurinus was Julius Caesar's adopted son, nephew, and later in life became an adopted son. But in 44 BC, you probably know the story, maybe, Julius Caesar is brutally killed in a revolt, where we get the phrase, et tu brute, because Brutus was involved. Octavius then ascended into a triumvirate with two other Roman leaders. One was named Mark Antony. You've probably heard of him. Cleopatra sure did. And also another Roman leader named Marcus Lepidus. Two years after this time where Octavius had been elevated, the Roman Senate decided to do something to honor their fallen leader, Julius Caesar, and they deified him. 
they passed a decree making him Divus Julius, which means the divine Julius, which meant that Octavius was now Divi Filius, the son of God. After becoming the sole emperor where he put down his two, his two rivals, now Octavius is given a new title. He's called Augustus. And it's a religious Roman term that in essence gives him credit for having divine power over all of humanity and all of nature. Octavius, the Roman emperor, the son of God, is also known as Caesar Augustus, who makes decree over all the Roman world that everyone should be counted and registered. And we know where that comes from and what it's pointing to, for it's a backdrop to the story that we celebrate every December. It's a backdrop that forced the parents of a new king, Joseph and Mary, to travel from their town of Nazareth in a very, very hard journey with Mary, great with child, to the city of David, Bethlehem, where they could obey this Roman decree. From the very beginning, we see a stark contrast, differences between two kings. The kingdom of Caesar Augustus, Divi Filius, the son of the divine Julius, and Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, son of Mary, a carpenter, but also the very son of God. The one promised long ago by numerous prophets, including the one that we're looking at now. You turn to Micah 5, join with me in looking at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Verse four, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock. Interesting that that term is used, given that David as a shepherd boy was the model king. He shall shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God and they shall dwell secure for now he shall be great not just in Israel but to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. What claim of fame for this little town of Bethlehem? I mean, they all of a sudden get top billing, though they are so tiny, no one really even thinks about them. It also contrasts how Caesar Augustus had violently come to power, but now one is coming to power that is vastly different than Caesar Augustus. Bethlehem, it can mean house of war, but commonly it's called the house of bread. That's what Bethlehem normally means. And it's interesting to me that Bethlehem is where Jesus was born because house of bread produced the bread of life. But in reality, Bethlehem was just a rinky-dink little rural town 
that nobody really cared about. In fact, when Joshua parsed out the territories for the 12 tribes as they came into the promised land, he gave to Judah this territory where Bethlehem was located and he named over 100 cities in that territory, but Bethlehem wasn't one of them. It wasn't large enough to be named in the provision Joshua gave. It wasn't large enough to be called a clan. The other name, Ephrathah, is interesting because it means to most people, fruitful. But just like Bethlehem has two meanings, so does Ephrathah. And the other meaning for Ephrathah is worthlessness or ash heap. It's interesting to me that something like Ephrathah can have a one word of fruitfulness that seems so appealing, and then other people see it as worthlessness, which is so not appealing. So while some saw Bethlehem Ephrathah as the house of bread and a a place of fruitfulness, most people saw it as an ash heap and something too small to make it significant. Yet God chose this little town, not just because he wanted to make it famous, but because he wanted to contrast how his king would come into power as opposed to all the worldly kings that had gone before and that have come since. This little town, Bethlehem, would be the birthplace of the promised ruler, the savior of the world. And it shows us that God always likes to use insignificant things to do his significant purpose. He likes to take that which is broken to fix the world. He likes to take the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish things to shame the wise. He takes the trash heaps of the world to produce fruitful rain. Which leads me to the final point that I have for us today. And quite frankly, it's the biggest contrast between the one that was in the backdrop at Jesus' birth and the one that was actually born. It shows that Jesus was unlike any other king that we've ever seen. There were none that could compare to him, not even the great David, who was the model king for Israel. And it comes actually from Isaiah's prophecy. We sang a little about it today as we were worshiping. It's from Isaiah's prophecy that we call the suffering servant, Isaiah 53 and verse 2. For he grew up before him like a young plant, And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. And he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Jesus' path to glory was like no one else. 
No one else would expect this would be the pathway for the king of kings to make his appearing. And yet, that is exactly how God sent his son into the world. He was despised and rejected. He was afflicted, he was crushed. And it's not simply a human tragedy that he endured, it's actually God's plan for all of this to happen. That's mind-blowing in and of itself. Christ willingly gave himself. He laid down his life, voluntarily suffered for us, took upon him the punishment that we deserved, and he became not only our high priest to make a way for us back to God, but he became the very sacrificial lamb that would do it. This is the picture of God's kind of king. Not the kind of the king that the world would make or declare or inaugurate or install or enthrone, but the king of kings come in a way that we could all touch and see and understand more fully because God became flesh and dwelt among us. For all of us today, anyone throughout history who's experienced the kinds of rejection that hurts so deeply or the kinds of obscurity that makes you feel like you don't appear or the kinds of ridicule that completely press you down where there is no hope or the kinds of brokenness that you think you'll never walk whole again. For the person who's had pain in their life and loneliness and suffering beyond comprehension. I have good news for you. And that is that Jesus the King understands. He's been there. He's experienced it. He loves you. And he can relate. And his affliction it has done more than just empathize with us and make us feel okay since someone else has experienced it. It's actually purchased something for us. His affliction has actually caused healing and new life and hope and eternal security to be secured for each of us. Isaiah goes on to say it this way in Isaiah 53, 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, and that literally means he shall see light and be satisfied. Jesus endured anguish of the soul because he knew there was something beyond it, and he saw the light, and he was satisfied with what he had done. He gave himself, and by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous." And he shall bear their iniquities. His seeing the light and being satisfied is more than personal vindication. As God's righteous servant, he bore our iniquities and made many of us to be accounted as righteous. He finished on the cross what he came to do in the manger. So, Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive.
our king. Amen. One of the things that has um, really impressed me with the boy with the ball um, process is that they have a, a mission um, that God has given to all of us, and they use volunteers who may or may not even know they've been called. <laughs> and that makes some people nervous. But it really excites me because... It is the picture of how God uses us. Hmm. Everything that you shared today about his kingship really came down to me for the definitions of the name of Bethlehem. Because Bethlehem, where Jesus resided, however momentarily, was called the house of bread. That was one of its meanings. And when we let him reside in our heart, rule over us, be king for us, we become a house of bread. It's true. If I cannot pronounce that, I never have been able to. Ephrathah. That one. If it is, if it goes from being an ash heap to being fruitful, that's exactly what happens to us when we say yes to him being king in our lives. And we become like those boy with the ball volunteers. We don't have it all together. We haven't figured out all of the answers. And no, we don't always realize that he's called us. But we can be useful. That's right. We can be useful. That's the best part about him being king. It's not that he makes your life okay. But that he allows your life, no matter how not okay it is, to be bread for somebody else, to be fruitful for somebody else, to make a difference. And that is thrilling to me. And that is what I'm going to pray for us about. Yeah, let's pray. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled at just the bigness of your plan. Yes, we are, God. How extraordinary the miracles that represent Christmas to us are really just a normal part of who you are. As big and amazing as they are to us, they are your kingdom. They are how it works. And you invited us then and you invite us now to acknowledge that you are the king above all things. There is no name greater than yours. There is no power greater than yours. And when we say yes to that, when we bow our knee, when we give you your rightful place in our hearts, yes, Lord. then you can take your rightful place in our everyday lives and you can bring all the wonder of your kingdom to bear for us, for the people that we love, and for the people you have called us to show your love to. Yes. So, Father, thank you for reminding us of what a wonderful opportunity we have. Thank you for reminding us that you are indeed king, the only good king. And that we belong to you because you 
made it so. You planned it before the world began. And you've made it true. Yes, Lord. And so we acknowledge you. We ascribe greatness to you. And we bow in worship. Yes. Lord, I pray for anyone here today or might be listening that feels invisible, small, and insignificant, that feels like their life has been a house of war rather than a house of bread, that feels that their life is more like a trash heap than a fruitful tree. I pray for anyone who is lonely and rejected and despised, who's been broken by life, who's been trampled upon, hurt, injured. Lord, you came and you suffered all of those things that we might receive your righteousness and your provision and that we might become children of God. To those who receive Christ Jesus as Lord, he gave the right to be called children of God. And I pray for those that are struggling with the strongholds and the barriers of insignificance and insecurity and fear and being despised. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and touch where they are in that wound, that you would bring it to the light and that you would bring healing and provision, that their wound could be turned into something useful for your kingdom, and that their injury would no longer be debilitating, but rather a glorification of what God has done. Help us, Lord, to be those kinds of people today that walk in the fullness of what you did for us. We thank you in Jesus' name, amen.